Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Judgment of Injustice, The Feast of Christ the King. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 20th, 2011. For my birthday, my daughter gave me a tiny lepton, or widow's mite, that was issued by Alexander Janius, the king of Judea from 103 to 76 BC. The coin from the king reminded me how, on this last Sunday of the liturgical year, Christians celebrate a king and a kingdom, albeit one that subverts the ways of this world. Few people live under a king today, so the metaphor of kingship feels understandably irrelevant. We're also repulsed at how the reigns of kings meant a reign of terror for most subjects, massive wealth and power obtained by cruelty, domination, and exploitation, which was then passed on by birthright to those who did nothing to earn it or deserve it. And then there are the Christian leaders throughout church history who have mimicked the worst characteristics of kings. Nonetheless, the Feast of Christ the King reminds us how deeply the language of kinship is embedded in the Christian story. The earliest followers of Jesus, and especially his detractors, used the language of kingship to describe who he was, what he said, and what he did. If you excise the language of kingship from the Gospels, its meaning and message would be impoverished. Pagan magi inquired at the birth of Jesus, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These pagan stargazers worshiped Jesus the king with their gifts. Mother Mary prophesied how her baby would bring down rulers from their thrones indicating that this king would reverse economic and political power structures. Jesus' very first words spoken in public proclaimed, The kingdom of God is at hand. The language of kingship also characterizes Jesus' death. His triumphal entry into the clogged streets of Jerusalem on Good Friday was a deeply ironic highly symbolic and deliberately provocative act. It was street theater that dramatized his mission and message. He didn't ride a donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. The Oxford scholar George Caird characterized Jesus' triumphal entry as more like a planned political demonstration than the religious celebration that we sentimentalize today. Borg and Crossan imagined not one, but two kings entering Jerusalem that Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a bold parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east in fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy. Look, your king is coming to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was later dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons, all of which were political. Luke writes, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, 
and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, they got one thing right. If Jesus was king, then Caesar, Pharaoh, Herod, and Pilate were not king. Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium, then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus replied. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate went back outside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns, <clears throat> befitting a man whom he miscalculated was a political failure. Hail, O King of the Jews, they mocked. Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying his emperor. He caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they responded. This tragic reduction of human identity to politics characterizes our own age today. When Pilate crucified Jesus, he insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross, written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that he knew would offend them. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course. They said, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. With his mockery of the Jews, Pilate wrote much more than he ever could have known or imagined. For later believers worshiped Jesus not only as king of the Jews, but as the king of kings, the king of the ages, and ruler of the kings of the earth. In this week's epistle, Paul writes that Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So just what sort of king is Jesus? How does his reign and rule compare with other kings? The readings this week show that King Jesus judges injustice instead of perpetuating injustice. Ezekiel indicts the shepherds of Israel who served themselves and ignored the weak, the injured, the sick, the stray, and the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, he says in 34 verse 4, and consequently the sheep became prey to hostile predators. God himself will therefore defend the weak and the lost and judge the sleek and the strong. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered, he says. In echoes of Psalm 100, God will rescue his sheep from fear and slavery and deliver them to safety. 
I will judge between one sheep and another, says Ezekiel 34:22. This, in fact, is the same message as this week's gospel in Matthew 25 about a king who sits on his throne judging all the nations. This king separates the sheep and the goats, blessing some with eternal life and consigning others to eternal punishment, all based upon how they treated the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner. There's a lot of talk these days about human injustice, but considerably less about divine judgment of injustice. In the readings this week, the just king judges injustice. I've recently read books about two dictator thugs. Charles Taylor of Liberia, the book And Still Peace Did Not Come, and Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, the title of the book The Fear. It's hard to fathom the evil that these psychopaths inflicted on their citizens. Systematic rape, economic plunder, torture of political opposition, and crimes against humanity. I take some solace in hoping that Taylor and Mugabe will be held accountable for their atrocities. And what about such divine judgment of human injustice? We can say a couple things. Thank goodness judgment belongs to God alone. Maybe the love of God and justice become intolerable for some people. They alone lock the doors of hell from the inside. Further, divine judgment is not merely retributive, but also redemptive. The early church fathers Origen and Gregory of Nyssa even hoped for the redemption of Satan. And most important of all, since divine judgment begins with God's people, 1 Peter 4, when we think of judgment, we shouldn't focus on Taylor or Mugabe. We should think about our own selves. This week, I review a title called Mighty Be Our Powers, a memoir, How Sisterhood, Prayer, and Sex Changed a Nation at War. New York Beast Books, 2011, 246 pages. The author is Lema Gabawi with Carol Mithers. Mighty Be Our Powers. Talk about good timing. The Liberian peace activist Lema Gabawi's memoir hit the bookstores in September of 2011. A month later, she won the Nobel Peace Prize with two other women. As she observes in her preface, war is made by men and analyzed by men. Women, if they're ever mentioned, are dismissed as a sidebar, marginalized like victims. But Bagawi's life in this book correct that misleading narrative. Her book begins with her high school graduation party in 1989, when she was 17 years old. Six months later, Liberia descended into 14 years of savage civil war. 
In the first phase of the conflict, Charles Taylor and Prince Johnson overthrew the government of Samuel Doe, recording the grisly execution of Doe with an infamous videotape that later sold in Monrovia's marketplaces. Taylor was elected president in 1997, but two years later other forces ousted him. By some estimates, 10% of the population was killed. 25% fled the country. Starvation, systematic rape, torture, mutilation, and Taylor's cocaine-crazed child soldiers who, were, who wore outlandish costumes are what most people remember. Schools and hospitals closed. Rats and dogs ate the unburied dead who littered the streets. There was no water, electricity, or phone service. Gabowie's personal life mirrored the political chaos. Estranged from her parents, by the time she was 26, she had four children and no husband, education, income, or skills. She was trapped in a vicious cycle of depression and self-hatred due to domestic violence. She was on a slippery slope to Nowheresville. 1998 marked a turning point when Gobawi volunteered with the Trauma, Healing, and Reconciliation Program of the Lutheran Church and witnessed the full horror of the war in rural Liberia. As Gabawi made connections, her passion, hard work, and leadership skills emerged. One night she had a dream in which God spoke to her, Gather the women to pray for peace. That dream became the Christian Women's Peace Initiative, in which Christian and Muslim women joined forces. They gathered in the mosques and the markets, met to share their personal horror stories, held weekly prayer meetings, denied men sex until peace came, forced Charles Taylor to peace talks in Ghana. And then in Ghana, they barricaded the do-nothing men in their plenary hall until they signed peace accords. After the 2003 peace accords, they were instrumental in disarming the country, registering voters, and electing Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as the first woman head of state in Africa. As I write this review, Liberia is in its first presidential election since Johnson Sirleaf came to power. The country has come a long way in the last eight years, thanks to the bravery, skill, and tenacity of Gabawi and people like her. The takeaway from this book is how ordinary people like her can bring extraordinary change in the most dire circumstances. For a film version of the Liberian Women's Peace Movement, see the documentary film Pray the Devil Back to Hell, available from Netflix streaming. The author, Lema Gaboe, 2011 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. The title of her memoir, Mighty Be Our Power. For film this week, I review Bill Cunningham, New York, 2010. For 30 years, Bill Cunningham has bicycled around New York City in his beret and safety vest in order to photograph the fashions not just of the famous, but of everyday people. 
Yes, he's entirely comfortable on the front row of the catwalks of New York and Paris, and at the philanthropic galas at the Met. But the best fashion, he says, is on the street. Always has been, and always will be. Aficionados of the New York Times will know his column called On the Street. One week it might be about fanny packs, another week baggy or saggy pants, denim skirts, or bell bottoms. Cunningham has never taken money, owned a television, he refuses all food and drink at galas, lived in a microscopic studio until he was evicted, and oh, by the way, he goes to church every Sunday. This documentary is barely 90 minutes long, but it captures the intensely private yet effusively professional Bill Cunningham. I watched this film on Netflix Instant Streaming. Bill Cunningham, New York, from the year 2010. And finally this week, for poetry, we posted a poem by Maya Angelou. The title, Touched by an Angel. We, unaccustomed to courage, exiles from delight, live coiled in shells of loneliness until love leaves its high holy temple and comes into our sight to liberate us into life. Love arrives, and in its train come ecstasies, old memories of pleasure, ancient histories of pain. Yet, if we are bold, love strikes away the chains of fear from our souls. We are weaned from our timidity, in the flush of love's light, we dare be brave. And suddenly we see that love costs all that we are and will ever be. Yet it is only love which sets us free. Maya Angelou, touched by an angel. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 20th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.